0: Morning, everybody. Welcome to Gateway. I just add my welcome to you. I'm Colin. I have the privilege of leading the team here at Gateway. If you are new, we'd love to say hello to you at the end, so please do stick around for tea and coffee and just come and grab one of us at the end to say hello. Right. If you are new, you will not know that we are um, p- preaching through the book of Daniel. It's a book that's in the Old Testament of the Bible, so it's Um, set before the time of Jesus, and it's an exciting story. It's a story that has many famous bits and pieces amongst this story that we know, maybe from just childhood, maybe from Sunday school, or maybe even, as we'll see today, just from culture around us, that that there are bits of this story that have just ingrained into um, the common mindset of people. And today we're going to hit one of those things, one of those points of the story, and you might find yourself saying, oh, that's where that comes from. So if you'd like to find Daniel in your Bible, um, we are going to be in Daniel chapter 5. Father, I just lift these um, few moments we have to you, and I pray that you would bless us through your Spirit. Therefore, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, you would come and open hearts, ears, and eyes to what you're doing. We pray that even this morning you would encounter us afresh through your grace and mercy. We pray that, Jesus, you would be magnified in our hearts, that we would make good decisions for you this morning. As we are provoked by your word, help us to respond to it, I pray. Therefore, help me in these moments by your spirit. Amen. So, I have a couple of points I want to make as we go through Daniel chapter 5, and we are very short on time, which is fine. So, they're going to be very short, succinct points. I have a taxi waiting, (laughs) and no, I haven't got time. Just carry on. and as we're going through, I uh, just want to give us opportunity to respond to specific and um, these specific points in prayer as we're going through. So I'll just stop at the end of each point and say, right, if this is you, stand up. I'm going to pray very short prayer for you. But then after I've preached, we're going to then have time to minister specifically into those for one another and to one another. Right. I just for a moment, as before we get going... Phil, if you could... Oh, Morris, thank you. If you could bring up the first chart of Daniel. This part we're in of Daniel is really quite interesting. Oh, we'll come back to that one in a moment. Next one. So we, we have gone through chapters 2, 3, and 4. The king's dream, the fiery furnace. And last week, Al preached on Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And chapters 2 through to 7 are fascinating in that they're written in another language. So chapter 1 and 7 through to 12 of Daniel is written in Hebrew, and chapters 2 through to 7 are written in Aramaic, which was kind of like a a common language amongst those kingdoms in Daniel's time. And there's a reason for that. But what's interesting is as as we've gone through, we've gone through these chapters, and now we're coming to chapter 5 today, which is about a new king's pride, Belshazzar's pride. Morris, if you want to go on one slide. So we see Belshazzar's pride today. So it's another king. God dealt with one king last week in his pride. And another king's pride today, Chapters chapter 5. Chapter 6, we see the lion's den next week. Please read that in advance of next week as we celebrate that Jesus is alive and risen. And he went down into the mouth of death on our behalf. And then, then we come to chapter 7. What's fascinating about these chapters is that they are also... Structured in such a way that there's pairs of chapters. So we have the king's dream, then Daniel's dream. Morris, if you want to go on one more slide. And these are around kingdoms and God's true kingdom that he's establishing. Chapters 3 and 6 are about God's people under persecution remaining faithful. So the, um, Daniel's friends and then lion, uh, in the fiery furnace and then Daniel in the lion's den. And chapters 4 and 5 are about the pride of nations and the pride of kings and that God is the true God who humbles people. And so it's around the pride of nation. And just as Ian led us in prayer, it's explaining why there is so much suffering in the world because of the pride of human hearts and kings and rulers and people just like us. What's fascinating about these pairs of scriptures um, is that in the Hebrew writing in their mindset the way that they structured their writing was they often used things like this where you would get pairs of scriptures that came to a final point when we're writing a letter if we want to make a case for something we would say point 1 point 2 point 3 and because of all of these points this is the outcome that's how we often present a case or make an argument for things in their world what they did was they had um They kind of went one way and then back the other. So you're going to find that these next three weeks, in some sense, are repeating the first three chapters, or the first, second, third, and fourth chapter, and the reason is this, that in the Hebrew writings, in their scriptures, often the point came in the middle. So, Morris, if you can go on one more slide, and the point of these chapters point to King Nebuchadnezzar's prayer, right at the heart of this block of scriptures, Isn't it amazing when you think of this? The Israelites have been carried off into captivity in Babylon because of their failure to declare and announce what King Nebuchadnezzar prayed when he was humble before God. He exalted the Most High God and declared his sovereign power and his lordship over all of the earth. That he can do whatever he wants. And so the point of this block of Daniel is King Nebuchadnezzar's prayer. If you weren't here last week, you can read it in your Bible at the end of chapter 4. This is the pivotal point in this whole section that God, our God, the God most high, the God of Daniel, is the God who reigns and rules above nations. He is the one who is establishing his kingdom. He calls his people to remain faithful even under persecution. And he is the one who is dealing with the pride in the nations of this world, even today. It's just a fascinating structure and that's how the Hebrew scriptures often work. You'll find lots of patterns like that in the Bible. It's not just repeating. We're not just going through the stories again. God is making a point that we are to be those who, like King Nebuchadnezzar, declare that he is the most high God. Right, we are coming into chapter 5. Many years have passed now. Daniel is probably well into his 80s, and there's a new king on the scene, King Belshazzar, and he is most likely to be um, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And this story in chapter 5 is the famous story where we get the phrase, the writing's on the wall. And so if you want to bring up Rem- Rembrandt's painting, you'll know Rembrandt's famous painting. Not that you can see it, it just looks like a blur on this screen. But where Belshazzar and his wives and concubines and nobles are sat around the table, feasting away, and then a hand appears, as we'll read in a moment, and writes on the wall, and these guys are terrified. So this 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 writing on the wall is common in our culture is celebrated in paintings and if you're a James Bond fan you will also know that it was the song that Sam Smith, thank you, Callum well done, you are awake, you were asleep a minute ago, good man, it's the song that Sam Smith wrote for the movie um, Spectre, the James Bond movie, it's going to be stuck in your heads now if you know it, Belshazzar he had a short reign, he reigned for just one year. And his name means that Bel, who was the god at that time of um, Babylonian kingdoms and thinking, it meant that Bel will protect the king. But as we will see at the end of this story, Bel is utterly unable to protect his king. So, where is Israel? It's important we just get a sense of where is Israel in their story at this point. Israel, over the years, have been advanced upon by the Mede and Persian armies and right at this point in the story they are at the gate of Babylon. They are ready to trounce Babylon and whilst they are ready to trounce Babylon we find that Belshazzar is throwing a feast for all his nobles and concubines. He's, he's resting on his laurels, he's not worried, he's a fool. We, ha- we know from historians that at this point Babylon had 20 years worth of supplies and that that the Medes and Persian armies were stuck the other side of the Euphrates River, and so it was difficult for them to get across. So Belshazzar, in his pride and arrogance, thought, We don't need to um, be strategizing and getting the army generals together. We're safe here behind our walls of Babylon. Little did he know what would happen to him by the end of this night. Babylon was full of pride. Let's just begin reading at chapter uh, verse one of chapter five. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets, cups that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king's and sorry, so that the king and his nobles and wives and concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold cups that he had, that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and concubines... Have I just read that? No. The king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. This act, this one act, clearly provoked the wrath of God. If you think that God is not a God who gets angry, you are utterly mistaken. He is a God who gets incredibly angry. He is a God who cares about the state of our world deeply. He is moved powerfully by it. He is not just sitting by and saying, oh look, Syria is in a mess. He is a God who cares deeply about injustice and about establishing justice upon the earth. There is a lot in this world that is wrong, and it moves the heart of God. If you don't know that, then you really need to read your Bible afresh and say, God, would you show me that you're a God who gets angry at injustice and sin and evil that is taking place in this world? The question is, why was God so bothered, riled, about a few cups? Why did he care? Why did he suddenly get angry, as we'll see in a moment, about a few cups? We need to go back and remember that these cups were taken from the temple, from the very holy of holies. They were a place where God encountered man. They were were representative of God himself. They were at the center of the holiness of God. They were at the center of worship of God. They spoke of the centrality of God, how glorious, worthy and wonderful he is. And that he is a God that we get to commune with. And they are being used in a very unholy way in a very arrogant way, in a way that says, let's basically spit on God. Let's set ourselves up against God. Look, these don't belong in his temple. They now belong to me and my kingdom, Belshazzar is thinking. And so we find that these guys, they're feasting away when they should have been, they shouldn't have been feasting. They should have been fasting and praying to the most high God, saying, God, keep us safe from these attacking Medes and Persians. But they're feasting. They're beginning to worship and praise dead idols. Here's the lesson number one briefly. God said to his people, and Daniel knew this, you must have no other gods other than me. I, the Lord, your God, am your God. Do not have any other gods, any other idols except for me. We often think that idol worship is something that happened back in the Old Testament. Oh, they worship wood statues, gold statues. We don't do that kind of thing. We're much more sophisticated. We're no more sophisticated. People are exactly the same. We worship idols. Idol worship is an issue of the heart. And it's interesting in the New Testament, the idea of idol worship is taken and developed into this thing of the deep desires of your heart, the insatiable desires, the things that grip your heart really is what idol worship is if it's not centered on God. Tim Keller in his fantastic book, Counterfeit Gods. Can I encourage you to get hold of it and read it? He unpacks this idea of idol worship and he says this. An idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I had that, then I will feel my life has meaning. I will have value and then I will feel significant and secure. If we look to something created to give us meaning, hope and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. How true is that? The biblical concept of idolatry is an extremely sophisticated idea, he says, integrating intellectual, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual categories. There are personal idols, such as romantic love and family, or money, power, children, fame, achievement, or access to particular social circles, or, listen to this one, The emotional dependence of others on you. That's very poignant, I think, in a local church community. People needing me can become an idol if I am not careful. Health, fitness, physical beauty. Many people look to these things for the hope, meaning, and fulfillment that only God can provide. Hey, this is what idol worship is. When you look to something... For the things that only God can provide. Your meaning, your purpose, your value. Only God can really tell you what those are. Put simply, I want you to, for a moment, imagine that your life is like a bike wheel. Oh, it doesn't work. It does work. It's a funny bike wheel. So you have your wheel that's your life. You've got the spokes that go from the the rim into the center hub. And you've got the hub at the center And just for a moment, bear with me, imagine that your life is like this wheel and your life is made up of many different things. It's made up of family, education, work, your husband, your wife, exercise, hobbies, money, leisure, children, food, friends, and so on and so forth. And this is the shape of our lives. This is what our lives look like. And all of these activities, all of these parts of our lives are the spoke that radiate from a hub out to the rim. They're what give our lives its shape. But just for a moment, I want you to ask yourself, what is the hub in the center of your life? What's at the middle of your life? The hub is key. If you don't have a hub in place, everything falls apart. The wheel loses shape, it can't hold up the weight of the rider, it can't hold up your life. What do you think right now is in the hub of your life? It could be anything, is the answer. It could be absolutely anything. Anything. It could be your children. They really can be at the center of your life. It could be a good education. It could be at the center of your life. If I get a good education, then I have meaning, identity, worth. It could be your name and your money. But the Bible tells us very clearly that God is to be at the center of our life. And that when God is at the center of our life... Every part of our life works as it's meant to. It doesn't mean we don't hit bumps in the road as we go along in life. But when God is at the centre, everything else holds together. Our life has um, structure to it and it works because it's how God has intended us to live. God at the centre of our life. Yet for so many of us, so many of us, God ends up being just merely a spoke in our life. He's a feature of our life but he's not at the center. Hey, I'm at the center. He's just one of the spokes. He's just somebody that every now and again, he passes in my life and I just pay him homage for a moment. Then I'm, I'm back onto me at the center of my life again. No, when God is at the center and that is how we are called to live, do not have any other idols. I am the true God. I am the God most high. I am your God and you are my people. Put me at the center of your life is God's point. When I am at the center of your life, then your life works. That's God's promise in the Bible. It might be incredibly hard, but it works. And so many of us can just have God as a spoke. This is my first prayer very quickly for us. Is God at the center of your life? And I just want you to be honest right now. Okay, we haven't got time to do a long prayer ministry time and to kind of say, come on. Let's try and persuade you. If God is speaking to you right now in your heart and you say, do you know, I know that God has not been at the center of my life. I know my life is out of shape. He's just one of the spokes. Can I invite you to stand? Do not worry about the person next to you, what they think this is a you and God thing right now. Come on, stand up. This is probably many of us. Okay, and I'm going to pray just very quickly. Father, thank you that you are the God most high. And I pray that you would help us in these days to make you the center of our life. Not merely a spoke, a feature in our life, but that you would be the hub of our life. That everything in our lives would be centered on you and then find their proper place alongside one another, but with you at the center, making our lives work. So I just pray for these guys and girls who have stood now. I just pray, even as we come into a ministry time at the end, I pray that you would encounter them, that that, that you at the center would be a fresh encounter with your spirit, reminding them that you love them and are for them. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well done. Right, lesson two. This is a very, very quick one. Daniel has been off the scene for a long time by this point. Time has passed in the story of Daniel. He's not in that he's not amongst the king's nobles in that first part of scripture. And he could have found himself thinking, "Ah, my time's gone. I'm no good here anymore. I've just got to I've just got to see my days out. I had my moment of glory with Nebuchadnezzar and now I'm just a backroom player. Nothing important's ever going to happen to me." He could be sat in his room, licking his wounds, feeling sorry for himself, poor old little him. This is the second point, faithfulness in the ordinary of life. Faithfulness in the ordinary of life. Just listen to this. So the guys are uh, feasting away and then suddenly, God does many suddenlies in life. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Just want you to think maybe whose hand that might be that's writing. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners just like Nebuchadnezzar. And then all the king's oh, moving on a bit. All the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were all baffled. The queen, the queen mother that is, hearing the voice of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. It's interesting that she's not feasting with them. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. He will tell you what the writing means. Suddenly, Daniel's going to be thrust back into the limelight again. What was Daniel doing in his time of obscurity? Well, we don't have to wonder. Chapter 6, verse 10 tells us he was being faithful. It says this, Now, when Daniel learned that a decree had been made that nobody was allowed to pray for 30 days to any god other than the king, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened towards Jerusalem Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. I often thought that at this point, it was Daniel was just being one of those, don't you tell me who I can and can't pray to. How dare you? I'm going to do whatever I like. I just saw in a moment, he had courage to stand up against the king. But listen to the rest of that line. It says this, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Day after day after day, three times a day before God, worshipping, facing Jerusalem, worshipping, declaring that God really is the most high God. He was being faithful. In his years of obscurity, he was being faithful. This is my next category of people that I want to pray for. If you think that when your moment comes, which it will do, God will bring people in your path, who he gives you to encounter them with the wonderful message of Jesus. If you're not faithful in the small hidden things of life, do not think for a moment that in those moments of opportunity or lo and behold when persecution comes that you will suddenly spring up and be the most faithful person to Jesus that there is. It doesn't happen. If you're not faithful with the small things of God, there's no chance you'll be faithful with the big things. So I want to just pray for a group of people. Those who are, living, who are struggling to live faith in the ordinary of life. And then the second group of people in this category is those who feel like they've been overlooked in some way. Maybe it's at work. Maybe you feel like you're overlooked in your family. You're just one of many kids. Boy, is that difficult, I'm sure. Maybe you feel like you've been overlooked in church. Can I encourage you, if that's you, just stand up. Don't make a big deal of it. If you have that sense of, I feel like I'm struggling to live faithfully in the ordinary of life. I feel like I'm waiting. When my chance comes, then I'll arise then I'll be faithful. Okay, I'm sure some of you have sat down in your hearts and sat down on your seats. So, Father, I just pray for the guys who have stood up right now. I just pray, Father, that you would help these guys to, to live faithfully for you in the ordinary of life. And that, Lord, as they are faithful to you in the ordinary, that you would lift them up and you would raise them up for the many great works that you have prepared for them in advance to do. Lord, I pray that you would motivate them, just like Daniel, in the, in the hidden away things of their life, that they would be faithful To you, for your glory, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. Jesus is looking for us to be faithful in the ordinary of life. God had not forgotten Daniel. I just want to say to you guys that stood up at the back, God has not forgotten Daniel. He has not forgotten you. He knows the plans and purposes and the things that he's spoken over your life. Very quickly, the king brings Daniel in, verse 13 and the king says to him, Are you Daniel? He's got no idea who this guy is. One of the exiles that my father, king of Judah, brought, um, the king brought in from Judah. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. And then he points to the writing on the wall, which I'm sure Daniel had already noticed. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, You'll be raised, you'll be clothed in purple, given gold, given a high position in my kingdom. Listen to Daniel's answer. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read and I will interpret for the king and tell you what it means. Daniel was not motivated by selfish gain and ambition. He had God at the center, not money, not position, Not his own pride, God was at the center. And Daniel gives Belshazzar a very quick history lesson. He says, your majesty, the God most high, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness, honor and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. That's what kings want, isn't it? He goes on to say, But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. And it goes on to say, Until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. This is our third lesson, very, very quickly. Belshazzar had learned nothing from the history and the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He had every opportunity to learn from somebody else's life, but he learned nothing. We have many things that shape our Christian lives, we have the scriptures, we have the spirit, we have one another, we have the culture that we live in. But one of the things that is so useful for shaping your life to, to live a Godward life, motivated by grace, fueled by the spirit, expectant of the things of God, is to read stories of other Christians who have gone before you. Christian biographies, and there are so many of them that are so good and they inspire us to say, wow, God really does get hold of normal men and women who have had an encounter with him who've encountered his grace, who've grasped something of his greatness and say, I want to go and share this with others. I wonder if the church doesn't read so many biographies of Christians these days. You used to hear it all the time, people passing biographies around. Hey, read this one of Jackie Pullinger. Read this one of Brother Yun. If you have not read Christian biographies, there are tons. I've got loads on my bookshelf. Just come and ask me. they just sat there getting dusty. They will fire you up to say, God really gets hold of people like me and you for his glory. My third and final prayer point is this. If you here are a second or third generation Christian, and by that I mean you were dragged to church as a kid, kicking and screaming, I want you to learn the lessons of those who have gone before you. I, I, my grandparents are Christians, my parents are Christians, I grew up in a Christian home, dragged to church. Do you know what it takes to become someone who knows that God is for them and is on their case and loves them is a fresh encounter with God. It's so dangerous for for Christians just to walk through life and go, well, I kind of grew up in the church. And my story is I kind of grew up in church and I still kind of go. I'm not quite sure why. Jesus is a spoke in my life when he needs to be, when I feel guilty on a Sunday morning. If you are a second or third or fourth generation Christian, can I invite you to stand? Come on, you know who you are. I want to pray for you guys that you would not sit back in this day. That you would not just do the the Belshazzar thing of saying, well, I kind of ended up here. I, I I could have found out about that, but I wasn't really bothered. I was interested in my own pride and selfish ambition. I want to pray for you right now that God would encounter you afresh. Gateway, just as we were worshipping this morning, I was looking across, and it's not about the outside, it's about the inside that God encounters us on, but I really believe, I just felt in, my, my, in the spirit that God wants to encounter us afresh with his grace and mercy. That we have to be those who are, even this morning before we go, encounter him by his spirit afresh today. Will you do that? Will you invite him in and say, Jesus, don't, help me, don't let me be just somebody who, who happens to be a second or third generation. Oh yeah, well my parents, they, my grandparents, they've really encountered Jesus, but I just go to church. No, Holy Spirit, come and encounter us afresh this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. And we're going to come to the fourth lesson I have next week, because I've run out of time. But really, it's this. I will tell you what it is, and you can think about it this week. Daniel explains what the writing on the wall means to Belshazzar. And in very simple, nine simple words, he says this. That, that, it says this, that very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, king of the Babylons, was slain. The, the fourth lesson for us is that the writing is on the wall of your life. You have been found wanting, your days are numbered, but Jesus is able to save That's the fourth lesson, and we will come back to that next week as we celebrate that Jesus is victorious, that he has defeated sin, death, the grave. It's empty. He is risen and ascended, and we are going to celebrate next week. Prepare your hearts to celebrate, people. He is alive, and He. your days are numbered. If you do not know Jesus here this morning, you're the next group of people that we're going to pray for as well. If you do not know Jesus, I want to tell you this. Your days are numbered There is a day of judgment coming when we will all stand before him and give an account of our life. If you are found wanting at that point, and by that I mean if you have not placed Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, that he is at the center of your life before that day, the Bible talks about this being very real, that you will be separated from him for all eternity, and it calls that hell, but Jesus is able to save. I will just read one scripture and then I'll go. And you can pray for each other. When we were utterly helpless, Romans 5, 6 to 11, when the writing was on the wall of our life, utterly helpless, Christ came and died for the ungodly. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, the writing is on the wall of your life, your days are numbered, you've been found wanting, but Christ can save you. Amen. Come on, let's. Um, if the band want to come up and lead us in worship, going to celebrate together. And then can I just encourage you, cross the room pray for one another, minister to one another, stir the gift of faith that is within you. God is good and he wants to encounter you afresh this morning and and fuel faith in you. Amen, let's go for it.